Hey everyone, I have the pleasure of sitting today with Alistair McIntosh. Alistair, welcome to the show. My oh, thank you, Vagu, and my wife and I are a great fan of your show, so it's oh, wonderful thank, to be with you. Thank you. So, um, Alistair has a wonderful book that he did a few years ago that really struck my fancy. It's called Spiritual Activism, and uh, we're going to talk about that book today. And Alistair, I love this. It has been described by BBC TV as one of the world's leading environmental campaigners. I like that word, campaigner. <laughs> a pioneer of modern land reform in Scotland, he helped bring the Isle of Eigg into community ownership. And uh, so you've been working with a lot of different land projects and community projects and, and you teach us a little bit, you know, just a little bit. Of, how did you arrive at all of this as a young man? Well, I grew up on the Isle of Lewis in the Outer Hebrides of Scotland, Vagu. And it wasn't until I was in my 20s when I went with voluntary service overseas, which is like your Peace Corps to Papua New Guinea and spent in total four years there, that I encountered people who were very closely connected with the land. And they asked me how much land I had. And I said, well, we don't have any because it's all owned by big landowners who colonized it. And they said, well, we thought all you white people were rich. How can you be rich if you've got no land? And of course, it meant rich in a sense of spiritually rich, of depth of connection with place and so on. So that got me thinking. And when I got back to Scotland after the second time in Papua New Guinea in 1986, I started working for something called the Iona Community, which is about spiritual regeneration based around the island of Iona. And the former youth worker of that, Tom Fersheich, was sent to see me, by which time I was teaching human ecology in Edinburgh University. And he said, how about we form a charitable trust, a land trust that doesn't have any money, but we take on the challenge to landed power because the island of Egg is up for sale. It's been forced onto the market by a court order and by creating a situation where the natives are restless, we can um, spoil the market, so to play, speak. So to cut the long story short, in 1997, 22 years ago, um, the island of Egg came into community ownership. We now have some 400 or so land trusts in Scotland with land reform legislation and nearly 3% of Scotland's land is in community land trusts. Wow, that's amazing, especially when you think of your history and your certainly your history with England hundreds and hundreds of years ago, which was very, very, uh, shall we say, challenging for people who are from Scotland, no? Indeed, indeed so. And, you know, my own mother is English, my father's Scottish. This is much deeper than, you know, English or Scottish things. This is about the way in which, in general, our minds and not just our lands have become colonized. And in order to decolonize the land, we've got to work on decolonizing the mind. And that's why for me and my close colleagues in this, the movement has always been one of liberation theology, of understanding what it is to be a human being in a way that leads to liberation at multiple levels, liberation with the land in a political sense and so on, but also liberation psychologically and spiritually. Mm. 
which brings us to the book and brings us to some of the things that you expound upon in the book. There's one, I mean, now everybody out there, Alistair, Alistair came to me uh, because of uh, his uh, familiarity with Ramdas, and all of you know of our relationship <laughs> with Ramdas. And this is the this is the Be Here Now Network. Uh, so, uh, and as you well know, Ramdas from the very beginning has done a lot of activism, and he's been a, a part of many different uh, organizations uh, that. Uh, activism was at the center of what they what they were doing and his thing has always been if you're going to go out there and change the world change your insides at the same time it's not like you got to get to be an enlightened being before you can do anything but certainly if you go out there and you are angry and you are polarizing it's going to be a very uh, a difficult task to change anything and so this, when I saw your book, Alistair, I was like, wow, okay, this is so in alignment with everything that we understand. And, uh, and I love this thing right at the beginning of the book, you, you get straight, okay, what is spirituality? This is a good question. It's yeah. something I've never thought of, you know, myself. And the presence, here it is, your interpretation, the presence of God, goddess, Allah, Christ, Brahman, whoever in our lives, the presence in our lives the inner aspect of reality and that which gives life and specifically life as love made manifest. That is a, that's a beautiful uh, translation really of what spirituality is. And, uh, um, so just tell me how, how this really does inform. I mean, and, and you throughout the book uh, talk about the different ways in which we can bring I call it divine presence into our lives, bring, um, you know, inner knowledge, you call it, and I call it, um, you know, self-inquiry, the Ramana Maharshi, I think you know who Ramana Maharshi is. So the self-inquiry yeah. thing, how important that is. And then what Ramdas talks about now, which is moving into a perspective in the center of your chest, which is from loving awareness. So really combining yeah. awareness and love. Yeah. So yeah, just talk about how that has really informed your work, this realization of bringing in uh, the, the spiritual nature that is our true uh, heritage. I think it's what the veteran Quaker mediator, and I am a Quaker by convincement, Adam Curl, calls... He, 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 he speaks of being convicted in the heart. You get pulled deeply into that space where you have to, as he puts it, unclench the fist around the frozen heart. So I think that that is the starting point. And then you move on to, like, Gandhi. And my co-author in this book, because I'm not the sole author, um, the a younger climate change activist, Matt Carmichael from England, um, he and I make use of a quotation from Mahatma Gandhi, where G Gandhi says, he's talking about Satyagraha, truth force, or God force, soul force. And Gandhi is saying that the opposite of Satya is Asatya, 
without truth, without God, but that the word satya also means reality. So you can either be in reality or you can be out of reality. And for me, the essence of spiritual activism is grounding ourselves in the deep reality, which is the cutting edge of the wave of life itself. Uh, it is that of Buddha nature in us. It is where the Atman is the Brahman. It is a case of I live yet not I, but Christ lives within me, as St. Paul on one of his good days put it. And one of his good days. <laughs> you, uh, you also quote somebody else, uh, Gustavo Gutierrez. Uh, Gutierrez, yeah. Gutierrez. Gustavo Gutierrez. Is the Peru yeah. Peruvian father of this liberation theology. I've never heard of this. Uh, liberation theology itself uh, can measure up to the task of liberating humankind, perhaps like Mahayana. I love how you tie all this stuff together. It's just so much us. I mean, how how we've uh, <laughs> the mystic. Uh, it's, a, it's a tangle ball of string. You pull in one thread and they yeah. connect it to all the others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like Mahayana Buddhism, with its Tibetan book of great liberation, uh, Gutierrez sees that true religion is the practice of setting life free. And I love this formula: to liberate equals to give life. To give and, life, to liberate. Yeah. That's Gustavo Gutierrez, the father of liberation theologian, theology. And I define liberation theology as theology that liberates theology to do the task of liberation. Mm. Because so much of the theology that we inherit, whether we're Christian, Muslim, Jews, uh, Buddhists, or whatever, so much of it actually locks us into things. You know, Ram Das is always saying, the method is great, but the method becomes a trap. So you've got to recognize when the method's becoming a trap and spring the trap. That's what liberation theology does. And you see, when Jesus says, I come to give my life a ransom for many or a ransom for all, as St. Paul has it, the fundamentalists interpret that in a military sense of a military ransom, a kind of deal with the devil or a deal with God, whichever way you want to look at it. But if you actually look at the Greek, the Greek word that Jesus uses is lutron or lightron, from which we get the English word loosen, because it means to liberate. A, a ransom is that which liberates. I come to give my life to liberate all. How? By the power of nonviolence, by ahimsa, by that satyagraha that the cross, if we want to look at the Christian representation of this, the cross represents, because the cross absorbs the violence of the world, by its non-violence. And so, to me, these are deep insights, these are pathways into how we do the work of love in the world. Ramdas, you know, the reason I love Ramdas's stuff so much is he's coming out of that deep Jewish tradition, further informed by his Hinduism. And he says, you know, he said it at one point, he says, and I often quote him on this, if in doubt what to do is your life, feed the hungry. And whenever I get young potential activists come to me, which I do all the time, saying, how can we become an activist? I say, if in doubt what to do, literally or metaphorically go out and feed the hungry and then you will find yourself fed also so true i mean we went all the way over to india we went back to india with when ramdas went back the second time after we had heard his whole 
sure. experience yeah. over there and we went back yeah. and and many of us were okay you you know you found a hindu guru and all right how are we going to get in i mean we were in our early 20s so we were a little bit naive to say the very least uh but you know <laughs> How are we going to raise the Kundalini and, and, you know, how are we going to get enlightened, Maharaji? Come on, come on. And, you know, he'd say, um, feed people. And and Ramdas was just, in this movie, we have a a new movie called Becoming Nobody with Ramdas, and, you know, which uh, covers the arc of his teachings in life, which is quite beautiful, which we hope you'll see one day. Um, But in it, he said, yeah, that kind of seemed real hokey to me. I was looking for the, you know, meditate for 10 years in a cave and then you'll get enlightened. And he's telling me to feed people, serve people. We were all looking for the big uh, statement of from Maharaji to do some real mm. practice, you know, to spend a long time in retreat in a cave or or stand on our head <laughs> spitting bullets or whatever the hell we were thinking about um and and the simplicity of uh, serve people well love serve remember which is the name of the foundation that that we have that's uh, that takes care of all of these activities uh, from all of us and ramdas of course being the main one and it seems too simple right but it is so yeah. real and you telling people, yes, yeah, start out, feed somebody, yeah, either literally or metaphorically, meaning just be with somebody and completely give them your total attention. That's feeding people. And um, that's it. That's it. Yeah. 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 That's it. And I mean, Ramdas does that so well. And you know, you folk around him, supporting him, even in his advanced old age now. Um, what? What gives me respect for Ramdas is that he's come out of a privileged family background. He could so easily have just wallowed in that and soaked up all the guru thing and so on. But no, you know, he goes out and he helps blind people. He sits with people who are dying and all the rest of it. That gives me real respect for him. He has taken the blessings that life has given them and he has used them to spread enlightenment. And I, for one, are very, you know, he's one of my many teachers indirectly, but I'm, I'm so grateful for the insights. And, and also, Raghu, to yourself for making available all these podcasts. Um, Varen, my wife and I, we avidly devour each Ramdas podcast that comes out. And just so grateful for that, because mm. these are good teachings, and they are about feeding one another. And you know, so often in today's world, um, pe- people, they do the yoga, or they may do the yoga, but they forget the karma. Mm. So you don't get the full karma yoga. You don't get the union with God that comes about through the work of service. And that's why Matt Carmichael and I subtitled the Spiritual Activism book, Leadership of Service. Mm, yeah. Now, there's uh, somebody I never heard of that's in your book that really fascinated me, Alistair. Uh, and that's Basava. Basava. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right. Basava. Um, and yeah, tell tell his story. Can you do it? It's uh, it's. Well, I'm going to have to pass on that because I really? say this is a joint authored book, and that section was written by Matt. So oh. you know he's not here, so I really have to pass on that one because I couldn't authoritatively tell you except that he was one of these early. Hindu 
teach or quasi-Hindu teachers who um, pointed the way down the activist path. Uh huh. Yeah. No. This is like. Well, all right. I've got the page up here. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. Yeah. You. You tell us. You tell, tell us. That, all right. <laughs> tell us what spoke. You tell yeah. us what spoke to you in that page. Yeah. Well. Of that. Okay. Great. Um, so he lived 850 years ago, and he was a highly educated Indian mystic and was appointed as finance minister by King Bidala of the Kalachuri dynasty. And he succeeded in increasing the kingdom's prosperity while promoting equality and human dignity. I mean, 850 mm -hmm. years ago, okay? As one of his sayings went, the cow does not give milk to whoever sits on its back, but it gives milk to whoever squats at its feet. Okay, yeah. that did me right away. I was there. I mean, what a great thing. Beautiful. And uh, Times of India in eight, 1918 claimed he implemented a comprehensive program of social reform with the elevation and independence of womanhood as its guiding point. That's also mm. extraordinary considering uh, our human history and how uh, and, and what's going on right now in that sure. area. Yeah, uh, it's pretty amazing. Sure. And Gandhi said, it's not been possible for me to practice all the precepts of Basava. One does not find even shades of casteism in him. Wow. There I mean, we go. that's all there the casteism being the rigid social class system of mm -hmm. institutional Hinduism. And he was radical yeah. in his in his religious beliefs, suggesting a personal mysticism that took him beyond the bounds of tradition and so many, as so many mystics have done, he undermined religious authority and taught that pilgrimage and temple worship were not necessary. This is like Kabir, um, who was, uh, uh, Maharaji used to, he didn't quote a lot of people, but Kabir was one of them. Um, uh, and because everyone was equal in God's eyes. And of course, he got into trouble with, uh, you know, the, the local priest, as they all do, <laughs> you know, because uh, that kind of usurping uh, takes money out of their hands, right? When the people uh, go for that, the truth. That was the problem with Jesus. You know, he took money out of the temple's hands because he overturned their tables and discredited their corrupt system, the corrupt sacrificial system. So this is always the problem with the two prophets, that they undermine the religious authorities and undo conventional religion by which people are controlled and kept, at least in part, enslaved. So, so as you're saying with your cow, you know, pacifier and the cow, you know, the cow doesn't give milk to who rides on its back. It gives milk to who sits at, at its feet. And it's a bit like that story that Carl Jung has, that a young rabbi said to an old rabbi, um, you know, why was it that in the past the sages saw God, whereas now nobody sees God any longer? And the old rabbi says, because these days nobody is prepared to stoop low enough. Mm. Beautiful. I didn't know that. That's great. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's uh, and that's where, you know, engagement with poverty, engagement with the poor, engagement where there is suffering, where the environment is broken, where people are broken. That's why these things are the path to God. These things are the path of karma yoga. These things are the object of our bhakti, of our devotion. Mm. So I want to go backwards a little bit. I, I still want to get from you um, 
just the transformational points in your early life that opened you okay. to, to certainly to spirituality or did it was it activism uh, or the idea that you you felt you needed to do something in this world to make it a better place uh, which came first or did they um, both happen at the same time and what were the triggers yeah well uh, you know i grew up in a very conventional um protestant presbyterian environment on the isle of lewis and in many ways that was very deep and it was a real living community so my understanding of community as membership one of another is basically coming from the island but the island's theology was you know very much at that time a hellfire type of theology it was quite a hardline calvinist theology mm. and when i got to university when i was um, 17 years old I quickly, you know, this was at the time of transcendental meditation and the whole, you know, the 60s counterculture revolution. It took a few years to reach up with us in the north of Scotland. So I kind of hit that at the epicenter when I went to university in 1973. And that was what then opened me to things like reading the Bhagavad Gita and to the idea that there was there could be such a thing as mystical experience or spiritual experience and also to the reality that there is desperate poverty desperate suffering in the world the the buddha's recognition that suffering exists is a fundamental fact and so i became absolutely obsessed with these things i i failed my mainstream exams in mainly science subjects that I was studying because I was so busy reading all these spiritual texts. I managed to scrape through university in the end, but I became convinced, you know, I wanted to go to it like you guys were doing. I wanted to go to India and find my guru, which is why I applied to do voluntary service overseas. Well, they didn't send me to India. Instead, they sent me to Papua New Guinea, which rather disappointed me at first. And what's more raggedy, can you imagine being sent from the highly Presbyterian Isle of Lewis to a Catholic, a Roman Catholic mission station in the outback of Papua New Guinea. But, 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 it was run by a retired Australian Archbishop, a saintly man called Virgil Copas, and four Mother Teresa missionaries of charity nuns, three of them from India. And so there I was living amongst these folk, immersed in their Christian spirituality, reading my Bhagavad Gita and Upanishads and Tao teaching and all the rest of it and experiencing daily the humility and the example and the sheer goodness of these people and their work with hard-pressed people in Papua New Guinea. So that really touched me and that helped by the metaphysical insights of Hinduism brought me back into reappreciating the Christian scriptures and indeed reappreciating the traditions in which I had been raised, albeit with a critical eye. That also set me on the path of deciding that I had to devote my life to working in the nonprofit sector. So to that end, I went back to university, to Edinburgh University, and did an MBA, a Master's in Business Administration, in 1980, because I wanted to have the skills necessary for management as George MacLeod, who founded the Iona community in Scotland at Iona Abbey once said, God is never served by inefficiency, which is one of the reasons why Matt Carmichael and I wrote Spiritual Activism, 
because we wanted to emphasize the importance of being effective in the activism that we do. And then that led me on into the land reform that I've described and um, the work that I do now with urban poverty here in Glasgow and also work with non-violence. I work a lot with the military um, giving lectures on non-violence and why non-violence is important, an important thing for them to understand in the world. So I speak at military staff colleges and that. that's a kind of range of work that I'm involved with. Mm, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> non-violence to the army, I love that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it seems like your your destiny going to Papua, Papua New Guinea uh, and the destiny of that, where you, it really brought together uh, your interest it it, in in both of these areas, which really become one, because there's no way you, you can look around the world without a sense of no. feeling of what can I do. I mean, it's very yes. difficult, and and compassion is so innate in us, and uh, so that's why I love what uh, you're doing here, that, you know, how you're bringing these two things together, because um, many people think, you know, okay, yeah, you want to get spiritual, and that's selfish. You're just going to do something for yourself, and you're not doing anything for anybody else, and in reality, these two things, you know, fit uh, as a glove with each other, and they, they really are one. They come together as... Uh, they come together so closely. And can I tell you a short story, Raghu, that um, you know, when I was coming back from Papua New Guinea on the first occasion, so this would be in 1980, March 1980, um, I was traveling back overland because I wanted to do that, you know, that kind of old hippie India trip that you folk had done, except didn't have the money to go to any very much, very much. So the trip was fairly limited. But I made it to Darjeeling, and one morning there was a knock on the door of the little place I was staying in. And there was a peddler with all these tourist trinkets, and he had them spread out and was wanting to sell them. So I kind of sat down with him because he had, he had sapphire blue eyes, and there was a quality to this man. You know how you can just sense a spiritual quality about people. So I, I sat down with him, and he was from Sikkim, which was just over the border. And he took a prayer wheel and started rotating it around. Om Mani Padme Hum, Om Mani Padme Hum. Now, you know, I'd read various commentaries on what those words mean. But it's always interesting to do as what we in Scotland refer to as asking a daft laddie question, the kind of question that a silly little boy would ask. So acting as if I didn't have any knowledge of it. I just said to him, what does Om Mani Padme Hum mean? And you know what he said? He didn't talk about the jewel or the heart of the lotus or anything like that. He just said, it means God come to my heart. God come to my heart. Om Mani Padme Hum. God come to my heart. And then, you know, old Jesus, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so these are the kind of things that the teaching was wove together and how the, the hunger for God, the, the, the pursuit of the divine, God, Goddess, Allah, Brahman, I don't care what you want to call it, Buddha, nature, whatever, Christ, I think is a particularly beautiful manifestation, but that's just my background. And the way that that binds in with 
feeding the hungry, with being there for one another, with looking out for one another as we walk along the street, keeping our eyes open, reading the street, watching for things, watching for opportunities where you can make a connection of the heart with other human beings. Beautiful, beautiful. Well said, Anser. Love that. Um, <laughs> now there's, Sometimes easier said than done. But yeah, yeah, mind. right. All of it is easier said than done. All of it, all of it. Broadening yeah, 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 your, yeah. your heart space and uh, and not being afraid to go out and 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 just do something for somebody else and forget about yourself. That's what this whole becoming nobody film, by the way, we just did uh, with with uh, featuring Ramdas, and it's it's about that. I I say to people, like uh, we just had an opening actually here. I'm in Maui, and um, the film opened at the Maui Film Festival just the other night. And I said, okay, what is becoming nobody? What does that mean? <laughs> well, here's it in, in most simple terms. When I first met Ramdas, and, and by the way, everybody out there listening, I know you've heard this before, but Alistair hasn't. So be patient. <laughs> when I first met Mar uh, Maharaji, Ramdas, <laughs> Yeah, uh, uh, <laughs> same difference. <laughs> it was in uh, Montreal, and uh, I was asked to uh, announce that he was giving a lecture at McGill University in Montreal. And uh, I didn't, I didn't know who he was. I said, "Well, send me a tape over." I loved Leary and Albert, uh, which I found out that's who Rob Dust was. <laughs> and uh, the, you know, I listened to the lecture, and I was completely, "Oh my God, this is everything I've been waiting to hear." But I, I got to find him, and they gave me an address, and I went out there, and I knocked on the door and he opened the door and just complete presence in the moment. There was no Richard wow. Albert. There was just wow. attention on me, kindness, being. attention, and just totally being here now with me. And be here now wasn't even out there. It wasn't oh. out at, at that point. Uh, so I didn't have those terms. All I knew is that I, I felt taken mm. care of and cared for in that moment mm. and that was him completely be he was nobody in other words his mini me his richard alpertness uh was mm. effaced in that moment he he was able to let go of that and be here for me so that was my first experience of somebody mm. a str complete stranger doing something like that and that's mm. uh you know that's what uh, becoming nobody and of course, we all have to go a million miles, maybe, we're thinking, to get to that point. But, you know, and I think you're doing this with the work that you're doing. It's every moment that you give yourself an opportunity to open up enough where you don't have any defense mechanisms in the moment. You just work to the moment where there's no defense mechanisms protecting yourselves from what? I mean, ourselves. I mean, we do protect ourselves on a moment-to-moment -moment basis um, uh, about so many different aspects of uh, that fear comes in with another person. Just go meet a stranger and, you know, and you can watch your defense pop up, just pop up. And, um, yeah, and so, but that's something, that's the beauty. That's our every moment we have an opportunity to come back to that place where we feel connected and it's okay to let down our defenses, mm. eh? becoming nobody. Pe yeah, pe 
people say to me, you know, how do you do the activism? And uh, and I say, well, you know, you, you go and take up a brush and sweep the floor. And they say, no, no, I want to do the kind of activism you do, like, you know, the community buyout of egg or saving the mountain that was going to be turned into a major quarry or something like that. I say, yeah, that's how you do it. You go in and you say what most needs to be done. You pick up the brush and sweep the floor. You do the photocopying. And some of them get it. And others, you know, like the rich young man that Jesus talked about, uh, he walked away sadly because he was very rich. He wasn't prepared to let go of it. And if if we walk, you know, if, if we walk through the world, if we walk to the bus, if we walk through a railway station or an airport or whatever it might be, if we walk through the world, just kept watching out, you know, reading the street, looking for things like maybe somebody struggling upstairs with their bags or somebody's dropped something or something like that. You will find no end of little opportunities to make these connections. And some of them just become so deeply magic. It, 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 it happened, you know, every time I go out, I come back and tell my wife's mother's story of what's just happened. Because if you're receptive to it, it comes to you and it, it blows your own mind, Ragu. It blows your own mind, you know, it's kind of like um, you're just tripping on the experience because it, such beauty unfolds. And especially so when you're, you know, we live in a, in a nice house in a hard-pressed community here in Govan in Glasgow, but especially amongst communities of relatively poor people who aren't kind of um, hiding themselves behind all of that wealth and performance and what have you. You get such deep naturalness and uh, real love expressed in community. Mm. Yeah, really. Now, um, mm. one thing you go into that's very important, I, th I think, um, uh, in one of your chapters, you say for some people the question of whether spirituality is, quote-unquote, for real does not real, require yeah. evidence mm. seems self-evident for, for but for many people it is not and yeah. this is mm. uh, one of the big uh, hills that people many people you know climb go. talk about that a little bit Alice there uh, around consciousness and the huge, yeah, to me it was a very important question Raghu because you know, I, I grew up in a, a, a fairly heavy, fundamental, relatively fundamentalist um, religious context in which belief in God, Christ and so on was a kind of given. Nobody would doubt those things. And yet I had all kinds of intellectual questions. And I felt that to be honest to life, um, I suppose I'm basically a scientist at heart in my way of thinking. Um, I like to see evidence. So I, in my late teens, it became a burning question for me, was there or was there not such a thing as spiritual reality? And one of the avenues I took for that was an intense study of parapsychology. If you go on my website, you'll see my earliest published papers, are parapsychological papers, because it seemed to me that if there was evidence for transcending space and time, that turns the whole material world upside down. And I researched that very deeply, and I had, in particular, one very powerful experience with my um, uh, my mother when a dog died, and she, she knew from a distance what had happened. Um, 
and so, you know, I, I thought, okay, well, there's a fair bit of evidence there, but somehow it wasn't satisfying deeply enough. And I started to realize that if you want to see good, you have to, you know, as that rabbi put it, you have to stoop low enough. You have to roll up your sleeves and be involved where the suffering is. Where is God? What side is God on? God is where the suffering is. What side of the war is God on? God is on the side of the war that is suffering. Um, so as I immerse myself in that, I suppose that I would say that gradually the question not only started to dissolve, but I also started to have occasional intimations of transcendental experience. So in the book, I describe one of them of a potentially very violent encounter with somebody outside Iona Abbey one night and my knees were literally shaking as I was holding this situation and this man who turned out to be an ex-army boxing champion and he turned out later to have been um, dealing with his alcoholism by going into public venues and picking fights with people um, was threatening to bury me six feet beneath the ground and swinging fists at me, just shaving past my nose to try and draw me into the fight. And I just, you know, there was my knees literally shaking like jelly. You know, I, I said to him, you can strike me if you want, but I'm not going to strike you back. And as I said that, you know, there we were underneath a starlit Hebridean sky, the Milky Way stretched out above us. And I literally felt as if a huge hand scooped down from out of the sky and held me. And that whatever was going to happen, it was all right. Now the situation dissolved. I mean, this had started off by the man shouting out erratically in the middle of a church service in Iona Abbey. It was a healing service. I had sat at the back because I was diffident about it. I was a bit, you know, um, I wasn't very comfortable with all of this Christian healing type stuff. So I sat right at the back. So I was there when this guy and his friend, a black American guy, came in and sat at the back. And he started singing very loudly and erratically in the first hymn. And then during the silence, he shouted out, and if I might on your program, Ragu, if I'm allowed to use this language because I'm quoting, he said, yeah, all a pile of fucking hypocrites. If Jesus fucking Christ could see you just now, he'd be ashamed of you. And, you know, the guy's poor friend was terribly embarrassed and eventually managed to get him to go out. And, and that was when something kicked in in my mind because I thought to myself, hey, ho hum. Is meant to be a healing. How about putting it to the test? So I went outside, you see, and said, Well, you're welcome to come back in because it's a healing service if that's what you come for. And that was when he said, Well, who the fuck are you? and started challenging me. Now, that situation resolved inwardly for me in that I felt that incredible deep peace of being literally, it felt like being held in the divine hand. And then my colleague, Helen Stephen, the justice and peace worker of the Iona community came out and she took over. She took the man back into the Abbey afterwards and he ended up playing beautiful Bach on the piano. And Raghu, do you know who that wow. man was? 
That was R.D. Lang. Ronald no. Lang of the no. divided self during his crazy era. What a privilege. What a teaching. And what a practical experience of the divine. And you know one other thing, Raghu? As he left that day, he told Helen, because the connection there afterwards was Helen, not with me. Um, he told Helen that he had experienced what he had experienced that night. He had decided he was going to join the church. Well, when his funeral service came, a Catholic priest surprised everybody, especially the relatives, by saying that unbeknown to everybody, anybody, um, Lang had joined the church before he died. <laughs> I don't know if he did or not, but that's what, yeah. according to the obituary in one of our newspapers, happened. So, and, you know, these are the kind of experiences. These are the kind of experiences where I go. And when these things happen, you really get challenged because you've got to say, well, either I believe my experience and all of the other stuff, all of the other documentation about people having spiritual experiences and the characteristics in common, or I disregard that. And in my case, I just decided to dive into the ocean and love swimming in it. Let go, let God, as they say on the bumper yeah, sticker. But wait go. a minute. You mean to tell me this boxer, formerly from in the armed forces, is the guy that yeah. threatened you and created it's this Ronnie thing? Lang, Ronald Lang, R.D. Lang, who wrote The Divided Self. Yeah, I and, well uh, know him. I, uh, he was, I, I'm sure you do. Yeah, he, he, he was, was in the armed forces at one time, and he was a champion boxer. Wow. And in Clayton's, I've got behind me here, I could even reach it, Raghu, and show it to you. Yeah. This is um, um, John Clay's biography, R.D. Lang, wow. A Divided Self, because he was actually, you know, his insights came from his own troubles, not least. Yeah. And Clay talks about how, at that time, this is what he was doing. He was going and picking fights because <laughs> he enjoyed giving people a good hammering. And, you know, if I hadn't been armed by nonviolence, Virgo, um, as, as, a, you know, as a shipyard worker said to me when I moved to Govan and I inquired about, because, you know, it's an area that has a certain, or had a certain reputation coming out of poverty. He said to me, um, Alistair, what do you do when you're walking along the streets? You come into a difficult situation. He says, here's my advice to you. Never show fear, do show respect. Mm. Never show fear, do show respect. Right. And that was kind of like Gandhi talks about nonviolence being our shield. That kind of attitude was my shield. Um, had I known it was R.D. Lang, it would probably have been very different because it would have shifted the ground, but I'm, I'm blessed that I didn't know who it was. So I had to, you know, face what I knew not what. And my goodness, when I read this biography, autobiography, not autobiography, when I read this biography here, I thought to myself, goodness, I actually had a close shave. You know, I had a close <laughs> shave that night. <laughs> what a blessed outcome. Uh, that's funny. You know, I don't know if you know it, but Lang and Ramdas were, were friends. In fact, uh, Is that true? Yeah, R.D. Lang, Ronnie came to India, uh, and I actually met him with Ramdas in, in up in the foothills of the Himalayas. He ca he actually came, and uh, yeah, we uh, Ramdas was very interested in his work, and and 
they were very aligned oh, on, on many different things. And wait till, I can't wait to, Ramdas is upstairs right now. I can't wait to go tell him, oh my oh, God, wait till you hear this story of, of Ronnie Lang. Oh, it's unbelievable. Well, you can read it to him because that, you know, I tell that story in the spiritual activism book. I think oh, okay. it's in the chapter on nonviolence. Okay, yeah. great. I will do um, so. <laughs> oh, that's so great. Um, I, I do want to get this in before we're getting close to, to the end, but... Um, and it fits in with what we're talking about, where people uh, acknowledge that uh, the interior life and interior uh, experience of, uh, quote unquote, spirituality, which you've defined and we've defined before mm. in the podcast, yeah. that uh, mystical experience and brain function is, uh, is part of one chapter that you're talking about. But in this, it's uh, William James uh, published a paper in mind about the inhalation of, of nitrous oxide. Okay. As soon as I read this, yeah. I, you know, he urged others to repeat his experiments in which the center and periphery of things seem to come together. The ego and its objects are one. So mm -hmm. I had this, in, <laughs> I think I've mentioned this before, but uh, it's, it, it's, it's a perfect uh, timing for it. Uh, last year, I was on my way to India. And I got a impacted, uh, infected uh, uh, molar or something, and it had to be removed. Mm. And I didn't have much time, so they had to kind of just shove me into a uh, an appointment with a surgeon, dental surgeon. And uh, and I, you know, I was a little nervous because I had to fly a few days later. So I, he said to me, um, "Don't worry about this. I just had the same thing done, and I just took some nitrous. It'll be fine." I go. <laughs> can I have nitrous? I hadn't had nitrous in a long time. <laughs> and he said, yeah, sure. So anyhow, he, uh, we finally got into the operating room and uh, he said, well, listen, you know, I've had to fit you in. So um, we'll, we'll just put you on the nitrous and I'll be back. Well, he didn't come back for like <laughs> 15, 20 minutes. Okay. Wow. I had a mystical experience. <laughs> I had divine presence really? for 15, 20 minutes. Yeah, I mean, wow. uh, so I have, you know, I have the uh, the rudder, Neem Karoli Baba, of divine presence. Yeah. And it was just yeah. totally there yeah. for me and ran. Uh, I was just uh, yes. an extraordinary experience. And, and just exactly wow. this in which the center and periphery of things seem to come together. The ego and its objects are one go. and then mm. transcendence happens. So I, I do think, uh, mm. and let me read this one thing. He says, William James, who's fantastic. Mm -hmm. uh, geez, I've got to do a podcast just around William James. Rational consciousness mm -hmm. is but one special type of consciousness whilst all about it parted from it by the flimsiest of screens. And that's uh, everybody... Mm. It is very, very flimsy, these screens that we have. There lie potential forms of consciousness entirely different. We may go through life without suspecting their existence, but apply the requisite stimulus, and at a touch they are there in all their completeness. No account of the universe in its totality can be final, which leaves these other forms of consciousness disregarded. So, I mean, that's very much what we're talking about here with Alice there uh, in terms of it is real. And of course, your summation of it, and you as a young man and going to Papua New Guinea and, and never mind that, just walking, as you say, I love this, just walk the streets. You are not, uh, you are bound and there is no question that you will be confronted by the reality of suffering and what 
course, the Buddha said, and you have an opportunity in that moment. To me, it's two things. Obviously, uh, to just to do something like help somebody up, a, you know, an older person up the stairs with a bag, but at the same time, watch your reactions, watch your motivations, watch the way in which, oh, I don't want to go there because it's going to intrude. Oh, I got to go somewhere right now. Watch all the ways in which we um, cut ourselves off from people. And in that watching, which can't come from a judgmental thing, and that's why it comes from uh, being more immersed in the spiritual heart, coming from your perspective of that rather than your head and your ego. There we go. Yeah. So. There you go. And you see, it's like, you know, opportunity favors the prepared. So on Monday night, I was coming home um, in the center of Glasgow, got off a train, went to a bus stop. And just as I was approaching the bus stop, Fragu, I saw a man, a drunk man, violently threw a cigarette end at a visibly Muslim woman. She was waving the veil and so on. What do you do? Well, just it was just like it was choreographed. Immediately, four of us from out of the queue surrounded the man who had done this. And basically, gradually, to cut the story short, defused the situation. But what was so interesting is that there were four of us who did this. But at one point in it, the husband of the woman who'd been assaulted in this way got quite agitated and the drunk man was closing in on him to pick a fight. And I said to the husband, you know, you need to be careful, otherwise, you know, you might be turned into the victim here. But it, it, the thing was escalating. And it suddenly came to me, you know, the Islamic word for peace is salam. And I just said to him, salam. He froze. I followed it up and said, assalamu alaikum, the Muslim greeting. And he just broke into a smile and stood back and it defused. Now, these are the kind of ways that if we ground ourselves in one another's spiritual traditions, in situations of conflict or potential conflict like that, we can be ready, I would say as moved by the spirit, as moved by the deep spirit of life, the Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call it, we can be ready to step into these situations. And if we show respect, but don't show fear, then, were kind of armed to do that. It doesn't always work. I have come away blooded from such interventions on one occasion. Um, it doesn't always work, and some people die in these situations. But on the whole, I think it, it allows us to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but to fear no ill. Really? And it's... I love the idea. It's the little things that help us the break. Little things. You break through fear. There we go. Basically. There we go. It's the little things of your action and service. You know, it's little things like you bothering to do these podcasts and so on and sharing Ramdas and stuff with us. Uh, that must be quite hard work. It must be quite a grind at times and so on. But it's the act of service and doing that that magnifies these things out into the world and um, multiplies blessing. Mm. Oh, this ain't no act of uh, contrition here talking to you. Let me tell you. This is called delight, <laughs> Alice. There. No, uh, well, likewise, likewise, uh, and um, um, you know, the I once met Ram Dass. I was presenting um, Ralph Metzner, whose mother was from Ayrshire, 
Um, and so with Timothy Leary's people being Irish and Ramdas being Jewish, you know, one of my jokes is that the whole counterculture revolution was set off by a Scotsman, an Irishman and a Jew. Yeah. But I had occasion through Ralph Metzner, <laughs> had occasion through Ralph Metzner to be invited to speak about the land issues and the spirituality at the 1994 conference of the International Transpersonal Association in Killarney in Ireland at which Ram Das was the big star speaker. And uh, you know, we all met each other as presenters in the presenter pre-session. But um, what happened later on is that I was walking through the long corridor and there was Ram Das coming slowly towards me. And I thought, my goodness, you know, here's my opportunity to sort of shake hands with the great man and so on, whose work was already an inspiration to me then. And, you know, Raghu, as Ramdas approached, I just felt to myself, you know, here he is at a conference of a thousand people or so. The last thing that that poor man wants is somebody else coming up to take a few minutes of his day. <laughs> so yeah. I just bowed my hand and bowed my head and passed by. And let me tell you, Raghu, the sense of darshan, the sense of blessing, mm that I experienced as that happened mm. has never left me. Mm. And it's that sense that when I listen to these podcasts that you do and benefit yet again from these teachings comes back on me. And by not invading his privacy, he gave me a gift that is always there. Mm. That's really beautiful. Please, please tell him that. Please oh, I will. That. I will absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. by the way, the, the one thing we, we haven't mentioned in all of this, which is uh, the core of everything you're talking about, everything that we represent and, and is the core of, of humanity, is uh, unconditional love. And uh, mm. not the love that's a business between us. You do this mm. and I'll love, you know, between marriages yeah, or yeah, relationships yeah. or, sure, or yeah, whatever it yeah, is. Yeah. And I'm just so pleased to meet you where that, that love has uh, just been sitting with me for this last hour. So, Alistair, it's just a, a wonderful thing. And I really appreciate you being here with us. And I'm so glad to have met you. And... Everybody out there, we're all the books, Alistair's books, ways to get in touch, uh, some of the other things we talked about, and some the Ronnie Lang book, I got to get that book. So uh, that'll all be available on the show notes on the BeHereNowNetwork.com slash mindrolling, and you'll be able to link it all up, and uh, we're happy to have had you. That's all I got to say. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. It's been such a privilege and go well. Go well, my friend. Thank you. We'll see you all next week on Mind Rolling. Ram Ram, as they say in India. <laughs> <laughs>